ChatGPT, it's not enough to solve complex problems such as, for example, like as a healthcare or solving, for example, different calculations for creating new type of, I don't know, of a quantum engine or quantum computer and something like this. Artificial intelligence that we face right now, it's just intelligence. It's real artificial consciousness because it has inside of it intelligence, empathy, reasoning skills, cognitive skills, self-awareness, ability to dream and to create, uh, to understand uh, what is life and death. Because currently intelligence, it's not able to do this. It only can calculate and to make it like weaker than a human. It has no logic. Sometimes it's irrational. It's about like uh, understanding what is irrational things about. Uh, I'm building AI to help humans. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Future of Product, where I, your host, Max Matson, uh, interview the most interesting product and AI thinkers that are building the products and world of tomorrow. Uh, today, my guest is Aliyah Greek. She's the founder and CEO at Evolvi, a deep company, deep tech company seeking to create the first empathetic and conscious AI to enable truly human interactions. Um, Aliyah, would you mind telling the audience a bit about your background? You've been involved in a lot of projects across a lot of spaces. Um, just kind of let people know, you know, where you come from and, and how you got here. Yeah, sure. So hi, Max. Hi, everyone. I'm really happy to be here and excited to share my knowledge about AI and product technologies. So uh, I have a 15 years background launching previously my own tech startups. So my first startup I created when I was at my uh, graduate years in at the university. And we created from scratch a new technology for solid oxide fuel cells. So it was a deep tech startup and a hardware startup. I exited the company in 2013. We sold it to one of the largest strategic partners and largest producers of fuel cells. And then I participated as a co-founder in space tech startups. I had two space tech startups. We created a 3D printer to print in outer space and a small launch vehicle to for nanosatellites and CubeSats. Uh, the companies were in Europe and uh, Canada, and uh, I exited the companies in uh, 2018. So after that time, I started, uh, so, uh, well, basically there are three things uh, which were of interest for me for the last, uh, like, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's space and space exploration, it's uh, human consciousness and AI. And that's how I started evolving because it came at the intersection between AI mm -hmm. technologies and the consciousness. And through the, uh, this, uh, I would say it was an interest for me to create a new disruptive technology, which can be, uh, I would say, much more efficient and powerful than existing, I would say, general uh, general. AI technologies. And um, I started to work on this, like, uh, so my uh, my basic education is in management, it's strategic management. I graduated from a Trinity College in Dublin and uh, had my also um, uh, courses at Berkeley University and HSA in France. And uh, after that, I received my second education in the area of neuroscience because it was interesting for me to investigate more about human consciousness and how this knowledge can be applied to building artificial general intelligence, AGI and artificial consciousness. And that's what we are working on right now at Evolving. Fantastic. I'll, I'll circle back to kind of some of the other things that you said, because they're all really fascinating. But 
I would love to kind of get a sense of what motivated you originally to pursue artificial general intelligence. Well, that's the idea. I was born in a family of astrophysicists. My mother was one of the leading astrophysicists in Soviet Union, and uh, she 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 was working for over twenty years on like exploring our universe, and it was so fascinating and interesting. So I was born in this environment, and then when I grew up, I thought that. Well, our own mind, human mind, it's not enough to explore, I would say, our universe, to reveal all the secrets and even to understand, like, ourselves. Because, like, right now, like, uh, we as a humans, we understand only, like, for 20%, I would say, our consciousness, our mind, our brain. And I thought that, like, we need some kind of new technology in order to help us to understand better, first of all, like, uh, ourselves and uh, to solve complex problems such as, for example, like, our universe exploration, creating new types of uh, medicine for longevity, for example, or to cure rare diseases. And that's uh, how I started to think about AGI because I would say, uh, in my opinion, like generative models, which we uh, we are facing right for the last mm -hmm. year, I would say with a with a revolution of ChatGPT, it's not enough to solve complex problems such as, for example, like as a healthcare or solving, for example, different calculations for creating new type of I don't know of a quantum engine or quantum computer and something like this. And that's why we need a new disruptive technology and AGI. And this also combined with my knowledge of neurobiology and neuroscience, because I really found some fascinating things which can be applied to, to create new types of architectures which are much more efficient and can help with much more complex things. And yeah, that, that was the idea behind Fantastic. And I love that you draw that distinction kind of between the generative AI models that we're seeing today and kind of what you reference as AGI. Now, now for those who are maybe a little bit less familiar, how do you think about artificial general intelligence? How would you kind of define that term? Well, uh, I would say that currently uh, artificial intelligence that we face right now, it's just intelligence. And... Uh, uh, we, as a human being, we are much more complex products, I would say, than just an intelligent models, mm. because we have our own emotions, we have mm. consciousness, we have self-awareness, we, we are able to study and to learn in a much more efficient way rather than AI right now. So we don't need such, <laughs> such a lot of computational power that mm. current AI uh, needs to, to create something. Right. And uh, I would say, uh, so for me, AGI, it's a much more efficient uh, uh, artificial uh, machine, I would say consciousness. So it's not only about intelligence, and it's a huge mm. distinction for me. It's real artificial consciousness because it has inside of it intelligence, empathy, reasoning skills, cognitive skills, self-awareness, ability to dream and to create. And that's the hugest difference for me because... I would say intelligence, it's when you can calculate something like pretty efficient, like, but mm -hmm. it's not an ability to create and to be creative and to provide all the, I would say this, uh, I would say uh, uh, skills like uh, that we as a human has. And uh, for example, consciousness, it's also about ability to be empathetic and to, uh, to understand what is feelings about and uh, what is about how to, I would say, uh, to understand uh, what is life and death, because mm. currently intelligence it's not able to do this. It only can calculate and to make it like quicker than a human. 
And uh, mm. that's the biggest difference for me between artificial consciousness, well, AGI, we can, we can say, right. and right. AI. Got it. Very good distinction to make. So all that being said, uh, Evolvi is very unique in that you guys are working towards creating the first empathetic conscious AI, right? Uh, what are some of the kind of advantages of a model like that, of, of an AGI versus kind of a more simple generative AI? And, and what are some of the applications that you see coming out of that? Yeah, sure. So first of all, uh, AGI and, well, I prefer to call it artificial consciousness because mm -hmm. AGI, it's, uh, it's uh, well, uh, it doesn't have all the facilities of the consciousness. So first of all, the distinction is uh, it's uh, much more efficient. So for example, like the first example is how the difference between learning processes. So we try to, tr to create the architecture, which is, can learn like um, human beings or kids. So for example, kids, mm -hmm. uh, you can show for them tomatoes. They don't need uh, millions of pictures of tomato in order mm. to recognize that it is a tomato. Right. They learn right. it like pretty simple and same, same way they learn to walk. They, they fall mm. and fall a couple of times and they, they start to walk. So we apply all this knowledge, uh, I mean, learning processes itself mm. to artificial consciousness. Second thing, it's, it's empathy and, um, uh, understanding of psychological things, psychological mm. traits. I do believe it's really, really important because in our day-to-day -day communication, we as a human beings, we are all emotional creatures. And uh, it's important to create uh, artificial emotions and artificial empathy that we already mm -hmm. achieved at Evolving. So our model can provide artificial empathy and we understand oh, wow. human being, his psychological traits, his mm -hmm. uniqueness of the character, what he feels right now through the way he texts and through the way he communicates. And wow. it's important in order to create a next level of uh, artificial consciousness, which mm -hmm. can be able to feel. And it's important, again, to be trained on a, on a faster and I would say much more uh, efficient way. Third thing, it's um, uh, the overall, I would say, approach to architecture, because right now uh, we don't, uh, our goal is to create an architecture which can be able to create, not to generate, as currently mm. like ChatGPT is doing, it's just generating answers, it's just generating text for you, but it doesn't create itself. And I believe that here it's um, essential, that, and uh, that's the angle which we focus a lot, it's um, uh, neuromorphic architectures, it's application of OR theory by Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff, it's quantum field theory and how neurons work. Uh, and we apply all the theories to creating these novel architectures. And overall, how it helps and why do we need this? So first of all, it's creative processes and better understanding of human being and human needs. Because mm. through this, it opens a huge variety of applications. So first of all, it's much more efficient uh, technologies for robotics, for autonomous vehicles, uh, mm. which, uh, which will be smarter in terms of like both driving, providing help in logistics, manufacturing processes, which with current existing AI you can't achieve. Right. Uh, second application, it's uh, solving complex problems. So as mm. I mentioned uh, before, for example, solving complex problems in drug discovery 
or uh, creating new types of technology for quantum engine, I don't know, or mm-hmm. uh, warp engines or whatever in order to explore our universe. And third application, it's of course like daily tasks and daily routines because probably you are aware is that current computational power in order to use chat GPT as for example as a search engine, it's enormous, it's not efficient. Mm-hmm. And through our technology, we will be able to achieve much more efficient way in terms of like compute, reducing computational power and mm. well, as a result, reduction of costs, reduction of CO2 emissions and so on. Mm. So that's, uh, that's the difference and that's the application. So that's we see. And our, our existing goals, it's first of all, we use a lot um, our technology for manufacturing processes. So our key clients are in robotics and manufacturing. We currently build our own virtual robots and plan to start building our physical robots this fall time. And it's applicable in terms of like, for example, assembling, processing, Mm -hmm. manufacturing, which is the hardest ones, I mean, in terms of like existing processes. And our second product is B2C product, but I would say it's a, a charity product, so it's for free. And it's a smart uh, companion who helps in uh, accomplish life mission, uh, to cope with loneliness, to understand better ourselves. So it's more, I would say, well-being angle. And currently we are integrating inside it a technology in order to create this personal, I would say, lifestyle and healthcare routines, uh, which will be applicable specifically for you. Yeah. Got it. Well, that's all incredibly fascinating. I um I love that distinction that you make there between generation and creativity. W- would you say that one of the key distinctions there is the generative models of today are making decisions, making interpretations, and they don't know why they're making those decisions, those computations, as opposed to a- an actually conscious model, which has a thought process, has a line of kind of, you know, in that you're modeling it after the brain, it has all of these kind of predetermined factors that are kind of leading to the decision, if that makes sense. Well, I would say that uh, we conducted in-house inside our team uh, research and uh, we are finalizing it right now with the Stanford University regarding like, uh, I would say, uh, uh, sparks of intelligence and consciousness Mm -hmm. in uh, generated models. Well, I would say that it has some sparks like mm-hmm. of intelligence and consciousness, but uh, in reality, it's uh, much more hallucination and mm-hmm. pretension to be conscious, but it's not conscious itself. So, and we uh, tested uh, the models, uh, ChatGPT, Lambda, Google models on a variety mm-hmm. of psychological tests and variety of different uh, psychological situations, but well, it's, I would say, it's, there is a lot of buzz around like, oh my God, like AI is conscious and so on, but in reality, just a hallucination. And we need to find, uh, well, we can't, we can't fine tune the model or not pretend to, to have a decision making and so on. But in reality, just trains on a huge amount of data and it, and it pretends that it, it can act conscious, consciously, but in reality, just mathematical calculations. I see. I see. It's kind of smoke and mirrors that appears to be, you know, something deeper, right? Yeah. Uh, I see. Okay. It's kind of like a player piano in that it's programmed to do the thing and it, and it looks incredibly impressive, but it's just kind of a mathematical sequence underlying. Yeah, yeah Got exactly. It. Got it. So 
Would you mind delving a little bit into some of the challenges uh, that you and your team have faced in building kind of an empathetic AI uh, and how you've managed to overcome some of those hurdles? Yeah, sure. So we started, uh, it's over five years right now with uh, with the company. Uh, we have inside the company a deep tech branch uh, with uh, who is dedicated to the research about artificial consciousness, artificial empathy, uh, neuromorphic architecture, spiking neural networks, uh, working with neuromorphic chips also. Mm-hmm. And we have a commercial activities like, as I mentioned, B2B and B2C. And I would say the biggest challenge for me personally as a founder, as a CEO of the company and as a CPO, obviously, is to always, I would say, uh, first of all, branch between deep tech side, research side and commercial side. So you know the, how it can be applied to future products. And there's a huge angle inside our team because all the research, it needs to be uh, practical. It needs to have mm. practical implications. It needs to be applied in products and it needs to help our clients as a final, I would say, goal. Hmm. And uh, I, I specifically structured our deep tech side and deep tech, uh, I would say, activities in a product model. So what does it mean? So it means that we uh, we focus our research in terms of like which outcomes we want to achieve it and how it can be applied to commercial products. And also it was a challenge for us in order to, well, our team is pretty multidisciplinary. So we have cognitive psychologists, we have psychometrics, we have ML engineers, uh, linguists, uh, NLP engineers, even mathematicians and physicists. And uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it's uh, I would say the biggest challenge is to combine all these people together and mm-hmm. to manage all, all of them and in order it, it can work like really smoothly and provide mm-hmm. the results and outcomes and I would say um, quite uh, quite efficient and quite uh, in, in a speedy way. And right. um, one of the challenges while building, building artificial empathy and artificial consciousness, in my opinion, it's a huge variety of experiments that we need to conduct. Mm. And I think it's uh, pretty likely in product hypothesis testing. Some, sometimes right. these experiments fail mm-hmm. and you need to create the process which will be efficient in terms of like hypothesis testing and to make it like fast, efficient. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say uh, um, in order not to waste, waste, waste the time of your team and of yourself and in order to understand what really works and what is just a waste of time and resources. So, yeah, it was one of the biggest challenges for us. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. I would imagine that with so many different kind of stakeholders across so many diverse fields, that is a lot of management, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Makes sense. So you've talked a little bit about kind of the neuroscience angle here, right? Um, and how cognitive science is really critical to you all developing this AGI architecture. Um, Could you share some insights into kind of how these principles are used to inform your your work day to day? Yeah, sure. So uh, I personally uh, learned a lot and applied a lot of knowledge to creating the initial architecture from from the following domain. So first of all, it's... uh, Cognitive psychology. So, how are we as a humans? So, what is awareness for us? Uh, what does it mean to be self-aware about our own ideas, our own thoughts? Uh, how it works in terms of like both psychology and neurobiology? And it was a really, really powerful thing in order to understand more about 
I would say both physical and psychological processes and apply it's, uh, we apply this knowledge to AI. Second thing, it's about our uh, educational processes. So how do we learn? How we do, do we learn from environment? And it means like we use a special term, uh, it's pretty well spread in AI embodied AI. So it means like mm. how we as an agent are embodied in, in the world and how we can get knowledge from the from the world, not from inside, I would say, our own generative models. Right. Uh, uh, third thing, uh, which uh, also I used a lot in our research, it's uh, psychology and uh, specifically emotion, emotions and mm. feelings, and research on this. So uh, why do you feel? How do you feel? What does it mean to be angry? What does mm. it mean to be angry in terms of like both physiology and psychology? How do we act when we feel, for example, sad or when we feel happy? Mm. And uh, how can we understand uh, the, about another person that he is happy or he is sad? And uh, then it's uh, all the understanding of, I call it like uh, model of the world as a human mm. being. So each of us has our own model of the world, which were, came from, I would say, our childhood, our life, uh, things which... Uh, which we are currently like uh, meeting with and facing with mm. like our friends, our work and so on. It's our model of the world. So how can we create this model of the world for AI and in order it can be perceived from this model of the world, can be learned and how it can interact. And yeah, so uh, I would say these three basic pillars which came to the background to our methodology and approach Currently, we are investigating research. Uh, we plan to reveal soon the results about quantum field theory and uh, OR uh, theory by Sir Roger Penrose and Stuart Hamerov. And uh, EM field theory, also we plan to investigate soon and also reveal the results. So, yeah, that's uh, even a couple of lines about our pillars and our background. Fantastic. So you all are on the cutting edge of kind of this research, right? Both when it comes to the, the physics aspect and kind of the, the neuropsychology aspect. What is it like to be, you know, at the same time that you're kind of learning and, and researching and discovering uh, these kind of fundamental realities to then be turning around and incorporating them into product? There must be a, a real balance between kind of the research and product builder aspect of your, your brains, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you need to balance all this. So first of all, I try to, uh, so I use all the products and management approaches to research part because I found it pretty uh, fascinating that the majority of uh, scientists, they, uh, they just take their time. So they're not trying to be in a sprint format or in a format, I would say, of uh, lean startup approach. So mm -hmm. I use lean methodologies, uh, for example, for research parts, mm -hmm. uh, because I find it's, uh, that it helps to be much more efficient when you create a sprint. Uh, approach when you have like specific KPIs mm -hmm. and goals and metrics, what you want to achieve through this particular research, what uh, t what is the timeline and uh, what you can do if you fail. And mm -hmm. then, of course, I manage and split all the resources for the research part and product part. And but it's uh, very flexible, so it's not like 50 50, like and mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, it's I would say. 
a more creative approach. So, for example, one specific month we can uh, we can be like thirty percent for research, seventy percent mm-hmm. for product side. I mean, commercial product side. Another month it can be like fifty fifty, but. Uh, I try to balance that research. It's not more than 50% of our activities and of our resources because otherwise, like, it doesn't make sense. But uh, I would say for me, it's uh, important also to uh, be open towards different research activities because it helps us to build, like, really uh, revolutionary and innovative products. I see. Okay, makes a ton of sense. So that kind of in the context of your extensive experience having launched, you know, several deep tech startups at this point at a global scale. Um, could you share some of the key lessons that you've learned from, from those previous startups that you've incorporated into Evolvi? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, all my previous background was always connected with uh, uh, with a uh, hardware tech uh, projects mm-hmm. and uh, again projects where deep tech side involves uh, like lots of resources mm-hmm. of the team. So um, for me, it's um, the most, I would say, there are a couple of lessons which I learned previously, which helped me uh, in Evolve. So first of all, that research part needs to be manageable and needs to have mm-hmm. these KPIs, outcomes, goals, and it needs to be agile, <laughs> lean, <laughs> and right. uh, very, I would say, adjustable and uh, fast in terms of experiments. And you need to limit specifically and intent uh, by intention your resources and time in order to achieve something in deep tech side. Uh, second thing which I learned that you need to have a specific and separate team for deep tech side and for commercial side. Because when you mix all this together, it fails because even uh, through their, I would say, approach, uh, research scientists in our team and commercial, uh, I would say commercial part engineers are pretty different. And you need to hire people, uh, keep in mind that uh, where do you want them uh, to work in the research mm-hmm. side or in the commercial side. Uh, then another lesson is to try to be I would say as creative as possible and to generate different experiments, ideas and uh, open to work with different collaborators and with different partners in order to create something new together. And uh, then another thing is to implement immediately if you achieve something. So don't put it inside the table, but implement immediately, at least as as some format of MVP, which you can test with uh, other people and engineers. Got yeah. it. Fantastic. That's a great roadmap. Um, so all of that being said, just to pivot a little bit, um, you are a speaker at a lot of international events. Um, I see on LinkedIn quite a bit that you're you're slated to speak at different places. Um, with that being said, uh, what are some of the kind of common questions or concerns that you hear uh, when you're talking about advancements in AI and, and specifically AGI? Well, the, the majority of concerns that, uh, first of all, will AI kill us <laughs> and ruin the humanity? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I would say the most funny question because um, I would say there is uh, lots of PR around this mm. uh, came from Elon Musk and uh, mm. other guys, but uh, it's uh, it's fake, <laughs> in my mm-hmm. opinion, because, uh, you know, to ruin the humanity, it needs to have, like, its own conscience and its own intent, and, well, right. it's uh, 
well, it's it's a dead, dead end to discuss mm-hmm. even this topic. Uh, second question and second concern, it's about like uh, when we can achieve uh, this artificial consciousness and AGI. And uh, here, like I comment usually that it's uh, three to five years. I mean, like I can speak about my own team and uh, our own results. Right. Uh, third question, it's about like this managing, I would say, balance between human development and AI. And uh, this this is the topic which is particularly interesting for me because uh, I'm building AI to help humans and not to be like, a, if you remember this cutting valley where mm. people were so lazy that uh, robots and AI helped yep. them everywhere, that they were fed like sitting in these spaceships mm-hmm. and doing nothing like, well, um, I don't like this scenario. And mm. I believe in this scenario where AI can uh, help us with routine things and uh, we, we will work more on creative aspects and complex things. And mm-hmm. uh, it means that we don't need to stop developing ourselves, but to develop our creativity and develop us as a human beings. Because even, even right now, you can see that for the last six months, like there was, a, there was lots of discussions about like that students use AI to, to create their like... Uh, uh, documents and course materials and so on and uh, i think that it's pretty i would say uh show that uh, we need to we need to start even like building education in another way that you need to really show your creativity and, le- and really apply your skills to create i would say some uh, some documents uh, your course materials or whatever and not just to generate it through <laughs> chat gpt no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great point, right? Um, so I do want to circle back. You said uh, around three to five years is is your rough estimate. Yeah. That is pretty amazing, right? Um, w- with that being said, w- how do you kind of imagine the future actually looking, right? Because it's something I've been talking about in the newsletter and, and with a lot of people is I think you're exactly spot on. Uh, the existential risk piece is so overblown. Um, in the media narrative, and I think is very much inspired by sci-fi stories as opposed to any like real reality. Um, but that being said, it certainly is going to change the world in a massive way. But what are some of the fundamental pieces that you see kind of changing uh, given that kind of relatively short timetable? Uh, you mean fundamental pieces that uh, change in this, I would say, timeline for three, five years? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, it's uh, computational power and resources. Mm-hmm. There is a huge development, and we also, as a team, we we look into this area. We uh, we started some research activities in this part. It's about uh, neuromorphic chips and chips in general, quantum chips and quantum computing, and uh, because hardware, it's important part in the, I would say this timeline. Second part, it's software and uh, creating these new types of architectures, which I mentioned previously, where which will be, well, I call it artificial consciousness. It's not AI, it's not AGI, it's artificial consciousness, uh, where you um, experiment with novel approaches and architectures inspired by psychology, human beings, learning processes, and so on. And third block, I would say it's, 
uh, overall the creativity of how we use this AGI and how we use like overall knowledge from our planet and our brain in order to make this AGI happen and to be embodied in some physical structure because I do believe mm -hmm. that we need a physical structure to create it. That's why we also plan to start building our own robots um, uh, soon. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, these core three, three pillars which we need to to use and um, which we need to focus on, which will influence this timeline. Fantastic. So, so circling back to the events a bit, um, I saw that recently you were a part of the AI for Good Summit. Um, yeah. What was, what was that experience like? Well, uh, yeah, as you have, <laughs> you, as you have noticed, I participate in different events or uh, yeah. also participated in May in Science of Consciousness conference. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of the most interesting, I would say, uh, conferences if you are interested in consciousness and AI technologies. Uh, and yeah, it was AI for Good Summit in Geneva. And uh, so, well, basically I participate in either research-focused uh, conferences on robotics, AI, and consciousness, mm. or I would say in more, I would say, general economic focus, like as, as it was AI for Good Summit in Geneva. Okay. It was uh, uh, it was a great uh, conference, and uh, it brought together engineers and uh, uh, so both software and hardware engineers, and mainly I would say teams that build their own robots. And um, uh, there were lots of discussions how it can be uh, this technology can be applied for good. Uh, first of all, for healthcare, for sustainability issues, how we can reduce CO two emissions through much more efficient architectures. And how all this knowledge can be applied for building like AI that will help humanity to solve complex problems. Mm. And then it was also a fascinating thing that it brought together both uh, research uh, people, uh, product people, I would say uh, policymakers, because it's also important angle in building AI for good. It's um, mm. uh, our policies. So how do we? control AI, how do we manage all this and uh, how do we manage, I would say, overall um, transparency of the data and privacy of the data and so on. So yeah, it was it was amazing. Fantastic. That's amazing. I um, Something I'm, I'm interested in just from some of my reading that I've done, uh, Nick Bostrom, if you're familiar. Um, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of my favorites. Um, he presents a lot of doomsday scenarios, obviously, um, as alongside a lot of rea more realistic scenarios. Um, but that being said, what what are some of the kind of you know second order effects that are that you all are trying to avoid, kind of in your building of a more emotionally linked um, artificial system like this? Is is there anything that you know you see potentially down the road that not done correctly, this type of technology could impact negatively? Yes, of course, and um, well, I see, and that's uh, that's why uh, we started about this emotional approach because mm -hmm. the majority of engineers and teams are focused on intelligence, on just like I would say, really simple, uh, not simple, of course, but uh, just mathematics and logic. It's great; it's really powerful tool, but mm -hmm. we need to have emotions in order to make this AI be helpful and mm -hmm. compassion, and to provide compassion in order to help people. Because if you focus only on logic, you it's uh, it's a cold format, and you can't right. help people. And uh, specifically, trying to 
Uh, that I, what I believe actually brings creativity to us as a human beings. It's uh, mm-hmm. this ability to feel and to be emotions and to be emotional about things because when we are really happy, we try, we can create something like uh, astonishing and something like outstanding. Same thing like that when we are like sad or uh, really angry on something like we have this powerful source of, um, I would say, intention to create something which can solve our problem. Like, for example, mm-hmm. like if, if you have some uh, some uh, problems with your colleagues or work or so mm-hmm. on. So, so that's why I believe that it's important to train AI with this emotional angle. Mm-hmm. And second thing, I, uh, I believe that it's important to train AI that what we use as a data sets for training, it's coaching and psychological data sets, because through this, it can learn what is like human interaction about it's and the human mm-hmm. interaction. It has no logic. Sometimes right. it's irrational. It's about like uh, understanding what is irrational things about. Mm-hmm. Certainly, definitely. I, I I kind of see this somewhat through the lens of uh, I think economics has gone through a similar kind of revolution in the last ten years, right? Where the simplistic models that are just purely based on you know calculus uh, would project one thing, and typically in like two thousand eight, for example, we see that it heavily diverges from what the model says. Uh, so incorporating kind of behavioral economics and behavioral science in general has elucidated a lot of these kind of human behaviors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's uh, what, what you just mentioned. It's uh, I totally share this approach and I incorporate it in my own research and development. Oh, fantastic. So uh, to that point, how, how does Evolvi use psychometrics, psycholinguistics, you know, these different kind of psychological patterns um, to analyze emotional states. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we, we, uh, we are currently, uh, working together with, uh, Stanford university, uh, with their psychometrics lab in order to understand and learn more about human being and our users and human behaviors through the way they text. So we use different approaches, it's psycholo- uh, psychological tools, like different uh, tests like MBTI, for example, or Hogan tests. Uh, we also use psychometrics and psycholinguistics because through text and through the way, for example, the person communicates, you can understand a lot about his personality. And mm. for me, it's data that, first of all, we use for our AI companion because mm. our, I would say, uh, crucial point in this AI companion that it can be truly personalized. So what does it mean? That it understands uh, specifically you, you, Max, as a person, as a personality, your needs, your goals, your values, mm. and it adapts to it. And through this, it can challenge you. It can optimize your overall, I would say, uh, well-being. And um, it can really, um, I would say, understand your goals and needs and help you to accomplish them. And that's uh, what we achieve through like uh, tools like psycholinguistics and psychometrics. Got it. I, there's so many applications that I can just think of off the top of my head for technology like this, right? Um, but that being said, one that I'm I'm really interested in um, that's kind of a non sequitur is uh, the applications of your AI in gaming, right? Yeah. Um, and specifically in NPCs and user interactions. Um, how do you ensure you know these human-like but still ethical and interesting kind of interactions with uh, with the model? 
So first of all, now uh, we we have we have a kind of like a codex for our model. It's a set of rules. So what a model can do and what it can do, how it can communicate and how it can communicate. I have a uh, one small project in mind for a future about like AI tutor for kids, and again it will be a set of codex, set of rules uh, for this model. And for NPCs, well, gaming, it's an interesting sector for me because through games, you can train better agents, uh, virtual agents in virtual environments. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's both the product side and I would say research side where you can train and upgrade your model uh, through, I would say, interaction with interacting with the environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we use here, like, uh, we plan to launch a couple of pilots with uh, games. And uh, it will, uh, the goal for this pilot is to uh, try to see how our model can, uh, how we can create uh, adaptive NPCs to a player behavior and uh, which can help player to make the game much more interesting and interactive. But of course, with a set of rules incorporated inside. Got it. No, that's so fascinating to think about um, when you just picture like the games of tomorrow to have, you know, interact meaningful interaction with NPCs, I think would go such a long way in creating that kind of sense of uh, absorption for the player, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But well, again, for uh, I believe that uh, through games, we can also train players because uh, I don't like the scenario where people will be just full in this virtual 100% of their life in the virtual reality. But through games, we can, I would say, uh, try to help people to uh, to work on their personal growth. It can be mm. incorporated inside the game, but I would say it's my future vision because I want to create smart games, not just to earn money on users and people. Right, right. Makes sense. And kind of bridging the gap there. So that actually kind of leads pretty well into the B2C product, right, Sensei? Um, yeah. So how do you envision it kind of supporting personal growth? What, what are kind of your plans there? So we already launched the product. It's available in uh, through, uh, you, can, you can have an access through our web version. It's totally free. And we won't charge uh, users and we don't have plans to, to bring any subscriptions. So it will be totally free with a free model. And uh, we we don't also plan to incorporate any advertising there. So oh, <laughs> yeah, because well, um, I want to help uh, humanity through this product and uh, to at least to help to make our planet a better place. Because uh, our AI companion, his goal is to help people on a daily basis. Because not uh, not much people can afford to have a personal coach or a personal mm -hmm. therapist or even a close friend to right. talk about his problems, his needs, and his thoughts. We mm. don't store any data; it's totally private, so we don't know like who who shared mm -hmm. words and so on. So, again, we have a strong focus on safety and privacy of our users' data. And uh, so currently you can explore it through like web platform or through Telegram Messenger and we plan to launch it soon in WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. And uh, you can just chat with it on a daily basis. Uh, he asks you about your goals, about your mission. He, he, is try, he is currently learning through your behavior and understanding your psychological profile and your uniqueness. And his goal is to... First of all, to understand your, because each person is unique and it's important 
that each of us has his own tasks, life missions, goals, and so on. So his purpose is to help through this and to help through this uh, through coaching and psychological tools. This is the first part of the AI campaign. And second part, it's optimizing, I would say, overall information process. So currently we are training it to help you with different information from both social media, from I would say uh, uh, from search engines, so I would say mm-hmm. optimize these search processes. So for example, personally for me, I'm interested, for example, in consciousness in space. So he will challenge me with this information or provide me information which can entertain or support me or relax and so on. And uh, then the third block, it's uh, in order to have this truly personalized experience, it's uh, it will be incorporated different lifestyle uh, routines. Uh, so it will be also your uh, fitness coach, your nutritionist, and so on. So all the areas and aspects mm-hmm. I would say on your daily behavior and basis. Right. And then it will also it will help you to um, to uh, to create I would say this. Uh, uh, different routine things like book your tickets or find some useful information or buy a product and so on. But it's long uh, term, long term plans. That's amazing, and it's also amazing that you're offering it for free. That's that's quite a service. Um, yeah. All that being said, I, I definitely can see this being the future, right? Um, when you talk about it, kind of augmenting the job of a psychologist or therapist. I can totally see that, right? Because so much of it is taking frameworks and understanding the human brain, analyzing the behavior of, of the person, right? And then providing a solution that actually makes sense for them. Um, yeah. Which I think a lot of people struggle with in sometimes even human-to-human interaction that I could see this serving very well for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I believe that also through this, uh, it will help also to establish re- relations between people uh, because uh, in our world, people are sometimes struggling uh, in terms of like their daily communication. Mm-hmm. And uh, this AI com- companion can act, I would say, as a uh, tool to interact between each other to resolve conflicts sometimes mm-hmm. and uh, to make it easier in terms of like communication, negotiations and understanding each other. Fantastic. No, it's very necessary. So all, all of that being said, just to, to pivot slightly. Um, so you've been recognized as a top woman entrepreneur in AI and a young entrepreneur by Forbes. What do those mean to you? And, and what does it mean to you generally to be such a successful and accomplished woman in the tech field? Well, for me, for, for me, it means more to create a product which will which will help one billion of people around the world. It means much more for me than different titles. And uh, for me, just I would say um, a recognition of my own efforts. But for my personal mission and goal is, uh, and I will feel really happy when one billion of people will use AI campaign or Sensei and uh, can make uh, their lives much more healthier, happier, fulfilled, and uh, truly, and they will feel truly inspired and energetic. That's awesome. That's a great mission. That's a, that will be the best title for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I have the sense that it's going to happen. Um, you have had such a successful track record across all of your different ventures, working with people like Boeing, NASA, Lexus, how how have all of these experiences kind of synthesized now into your outlook as a founder? 
Uh, so first of all, it, pro- uh, it gave me a huge knowledge about both corporation style of managing businesses, people, and um, processes, and sort of style, style, and how you can act. I would say at their intersection between them. And th- since I also have this uh, bit of the research background, it also helps me to understand how you can incorporate, like I would say from different segments, like corporate, startup, mm. uh, culture, and uh, research culture, different aspects and create your own um, leading, I would say, style and product style. Because uh, there are pros and cons in both like corporate and startups culture. And I'm just trying to balance all this and use this knowledge for for good. And uh, it also helps me a lot of this knowledge about Boeing, uh, uh, when we worked with Boeing and Mitsubishi, for example, uh, what are their pains? How we can mm-hmm. create a product for, uh, like, for example, like robotics products for companies like this? How it can help them in their processes and routines? How what we should keep in mind when we are building this product? So yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, all of this is it's really helpful. Fantastic. And Alia, as a final question, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to any entrepreneur who's looking to get into deep tech, into AI? into, you know, anything space related, into any of the things that you have kind of uh, been involved in throughout your career? My biggest advice uh, will be to be open to new knowledge and new, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, new information. And uh, I'm a non-technical uh, person. I, I'm not a software engineer. I don't have an engineering background. But it helped me a lot because, uh, and, and specifically when you have a, when you don't have this technical background, mm-hmm. you should uh, you can create really really amazing products and things and can create disruptive technologies because that's I would say uh, the core strength of non-technical founders, mm-hmm. non-technical entrepreneurs because you can see the gaps uh, because mm-hmm. a technical person will be too skeptical or he will have too much information information overload knowledge overload overload right. so i believe uh, my biggest advice is to believe in yourself and believe that you can find the gap and create something like uh interesting and always be curious for new information even if it's uh, non i would say um uh, from it came from a different direction so for example like in our approach we combine knowledge from different uh, areas like uh, cognitive science like cognitive mm-hmm. psychology coaching ai and uh, i'm uh, i would say it's part of my creative routine and creative approach and uh, that brings huge benefits to you as a founder and as a product as a result fantastic excellent advice um well, Aaliyah, th- this has been incredibly fascinating. I- I've been, I feel so lucky to, you know, I've gotten to learn a little bit more about you and what you're doing at Evolvi, and I-, I can't wait to see what you all do. Yeah, thank you so much, Max. Thank you for curious questions and amazing discussion. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Thank you.